how many times in history has there been such a universal cooperative statement of goodwill? Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Sustaining with Shana a show where I will share all the amazing and exciting works of sustainability happening across the eastern foothills of the Appalachian Mountains to the lush farmlands of southeastern Pennsylvania. By celebrating our community, we can help to bridge the gap between local and international sustainability endeavors. On today's episode, I sat down with a good friend of mine, Lowell Bliss, and together we talked about what COP26 is and what this huge international event that happened in Glasgow, Scotland a few weeks ago was all about. We talk about the complexities of what COP26 is. We dabble into things like what is the UNFCCC, and we also talk about the results of COP26 which was the Glasgow Climate Pact. And also with the Glasgow Climate Pact, we talked about the concerns that individuals and community organizations and even governments have around the world that the Glasgow Climate Pact may not be enough. But we also talked about the progress that has been made since the Paris Climate Agreement. But I'd also like to inform the listeners of some updates that are going on. So in addition to this episode, there is only a few more episodes left for uh, the season one of Sustaining with Shana. And right now, Sustaining with Shana is, I guess you could say, kind of in a hibernation mode at the moment, because I'm in the process of rebranding the entire podcast and platform, which I am so excited about and so excited to share not only new content, but also a new design and a new look to the platform. And I'm looking to relaunch the platform with a new season of new episodes coming spring of 2022. To follow along with the journey of that's been going on as far as rebranding and relaunching of new content, you can follow both the Sustaining with Shana Instagram or Facebook pages to learn more. And if you follow along closely, maybe you'll see some spoilers out there of what's to hold for the next season and new look. Welcome back to another episode of Sustaining with Shana. This one is special because it's a a debrief of COP26 that just happened a few weeks ago. Uh, And I have a special guest and personal friend with me here. So Lowell, please introduce yourself and talk about the important work you're doing. Yeah. Hi, Shana. This is good to be with you. The last time we were together was in Madrid in uh in cop 25 and uh that was a special experience and and of course we could have met each other at cop 23 in bonn 
Yes. Because you were there. You had even managed to kind of weasel your way into what was it, the Liberian delegation? Yeah, yeah. definitely. But we didn't know each other existed, uh, did we? But uh, anyway, it's good to be back together even on this podcast. So thank you for the invite. Yeah, absolutely. Your question was about an introduction. So, um, so here it goes. My name is Lowell Bliss. Um, I currently live in uh, Ontario, Canada, not too far from Niagara Falls, although my birth country and my passport country is the United States. Um, what, uh, what introduced uh, Shana and I and what brought me back to Glasgow uh, was a, uh, a program that I co-direct with Brian Webb of Houghton College. And the program is called the Christian Climate Observers Program. And it brings uh, young or <laughs> even older emerging leaders. I guess that's, that's the thing. It, it brings emerging leaders uh, to these cops, allows them to have an immersive experience of, of climate action and, and of the COP, uh, provides some uh, debriefing and we would even say Christian discipleship along the way to look at their experience from a Christian and a missional uh, perspective. And then also it helps them develop uh, personal communication plans to mobilize their, uh, their own constituencies back home, wherever that might be. So how's that for an introduction? That sounds great. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. And we've all done, I mean, speaking to being the inaugural group, we've, we've done yeah. a lot as individuals. And I feel like part of part of that call after coming home from COP25 for me was starting this podcast in general, amongst other things too. But like, yeah. that was kind of that mobilization uh, for my constituency. So yeah. Uh, so then kind of stepping into that, uh, I know the concept of COP26 has been consistently in the news. And for a lot of people that don't really know what these United Nations uh, climate conference are, can you kind of briefly talk about what COP26 is and like what are COPs in general? Sure. So the word COP stands for the uh, Conference of the Parties. And these are parties, you know, originally to the formation of the United Nations Framework uh, Convention on Climate Change, but then later the Kyoto Protocol and now the, uh, the Paris Agreement. So uh, these are 196 nations um, meeting annually to work on, you know, on climate change. And now, you know, most specifically to work on the Paris Agreement, which was adopted back in, um, in 2015 at COP21. We've had a period of five uh, or four COPs, let's say, where uh, they were working on uh, the rule book for how to implement the Paris Agreement and also um, experiencing the first five-year cycle of doing a global stock take where the world says, okay, how are we doing, uh, you know, in uh, according to our metrics on, on meeting the uh, targets that we've set. And then following that global stock take, uh, a new round of nationally determined contributions, NDCs for carbon reduction emissions. 
So that five-year period ended in, uh, well, actually it ended in 2020, but we've had it in a postponement, haven't we? But it was meant to end at COP26, where, um, uh, where the Paris Agreement finally goes into full effect and where the nations were to bring a new round of ambitious uh, NDCs. So it's, uh, that's the bare bones. <laughs> As an event, um, it's, it's huge. It brings together civil society and delegations from all sectors of the world, 196 nations, we said. Uh, in years past, we've had you know, upwards to 30,000 people uh, descending on a particular location for one of these climate summits. But this year, the official numbers were 40,000 um, coming to Glasgow, registered with the UNFCCC. Uh, for the sake of the uh, implementing the Paris Agreement. Yeah, and that's insane to think of how many people were there. And mm. just, I wanted to add one key thing um, that you mentioned in there. So like the UNFCCC is the, basically like the whole governing organization. And then COP26 is like the 26th iteration of yeah. these uh, convenings. So another thing too, it's like, if any of the listeners have followed the US pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, if we were still, let's say, pulled out by the time of COP26, the US would still have to be there to some degree because they pulled out of the Paris Agreement. They didn't pull out of the UNFCCC. So I think like that's one thing that is a little confusing. I think if you're not like in the weeds, like somebody like you or I, that's been to multiple cops, mm. um, that kind of being translated to this whole thing about like with the new administration, it's like, are, are we going to be a part of this or not? Like, are we just going to completely not be there? Um, but that was only just for the Paris agreement that we we're leaving from. Um, yeah, so it's like, it gets pretty heady pretty quickly too. Yeah, of course that's, you know, that's that's the technical aspect of it. And of course yeah. uh, the world of uh, diplomacy and agreements and treaties and, uh, you know, the way something is worded one way or the other, you know, is, is, is significant. <laughs> uh, and yet, you know, for all the technicalities, you know, the fact of the matter is the U.S., there's a way to show up at a cop and not show up at a cop. And, uh, and you know, you and I saw that in full effect at COP23 in, uh, in Bonn, Germany, mm -hmm. where uh, the first cop after President Trump had announced his intention to withdraw and so who did they send by way of a delegation? Well, it was headed by some very low level uh, second tier former ambassador um, who didn't have really any experience in this space. And the one workshop they offered was um, about how clean coal technology needs to be part of the solution. And I don't know if you were there at that protest, but uh, uh, a good portion of the uh, people in the hallway just stood up and turn their back, you know, they weren't having anything out. So it does signify that this is um, the first cap cop where um, um, 
where the United States is is back in the Paris Agreement, and um, you know where uh, Secretary Kerry and um, and Joe Biden and you know everyone was again making a good faith effort to uh, for the sake of this goodwill cooperative agreement. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that, um, and that was the first COP ever. So it's like I kind of went on my own accord. I don't think I was on the Liberian delegation yet and knew okay. how, how that all worked. Um, but like, yeah, I was just like standing there and I think it was sustain us and another youth delegation. Just okay. like the, I was outside of it. I wasn't in the room, but it's just like to see people all sit at the same time. I didn't realize what it was till like yeah. days later. But yeah. yeah, yeah, that was that was an a memorable event at COP twenty three for sure. Yeah, well, let me tell you about another incident at COP twenty three, and and I had a chance to relate that uh, to both of our teams um, on the first day of of them going into the blue zone for for COP26 heading into the official space mm -hmm. um, because we did we took a moment I mean we're a faith-based program we took a moment to just recognize the significance of you know American Christians <laughs> again uh, being in the COP but now having to come with a degree of humility to show up not as Americans first but really as Christians first and with mm -hmm. that humility and um and so we took a moment even just of prayer and thanksgiving but um the story from cop 23 that i told was uh again this was the first cop um after trump had announced his withdrawal uh, i had arrived early all my other friends and colleagues were coming in in a couple days so i was wandering around the the blue zone the official zone um on my own and uh, in those days, the first couple of days really were pretty quiet. <laughs> uh, at COP26, it was just mind-blowingly chaotic and lines of two hours long to get in. But I was just watching, and people were still building their pavilions and stuff. And I was talking to an official with the uh, Green Climate Fund. Mm. He was a German man who, um, uh, who was based in Seoul, which is where the fund is located. And I just wanted to talk to a fellow human being, someone from outside the US. And, and I just wanted to like voice my lament. And to tell you the truth, I even just wanted to apologize, apologize on behalf of my government, on behalf of, um, you know, my country uh, people. And, uh, uh, and I just wanted someone to hear me. <laughs> and he did. He listened so graciously. He listened so uh, uh, welcomingly. And then he said this story to me. He said, my grandmother um, and my family was in Berlin during World War II. Mm -hmm. And they were in, um, in Berlin, walled off by the Soviet occupation all around them. And uh, and my grand, I grew up with my grandmother telling me stories and saying the U.S.-led Marshall Plan, the U.S.-led Berlin Airlift kept our family alive. Mm. We would not be here if it had not been for the Americans. And uh, 
you know, that just touched me so deeply because then he said, you've been there before as a nation and you'll be back, he said. And that was, you know, that was COP 23 and, you know, here we are in COP 26 and, you know, whether we are as fully back as what we should be, you know, based on what uh, President Biden, Secretary Kerry, and the delegation brought <laughs> to COP26. That's that you know that's still in question, um, but hopefully we're back with the with the much more humility. So, yeah, I think that's a very good example to show that because um, I think one thing I wanted to add to that is like after meeting the delegation, the U.S. delegation at COP25, yeah, at COP25, I think it was iconic and ironic too at the same time that the slogan or the hashtag that year was time for action. And the U.S. uh, plenary like meeting room was in a key uh, thoroughfare basically from the whole cop venue. And it's just like, you would see it and you would see that little hashtag on every sign and you just think like, it's time for action now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was another hashtag that I think made its first appearance at COP23 and I've seen it subsequently. And that was um, the Macron government and uh, the French delegation and the French pavilion. And of course they've got a, you know, vested interest in the Paris Agreement, named after it is, and they've got a vested interest in, 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 in something that they did so wonderfully, which was, you know, the, the uh, COP21 Paris, uh, uh, the COP there in Paris. Um, but uh, the, they had a hashtag, hashtag make the planet great again. And it was so obvious, you know, a challenge and a confrontation and even somewhat mocking and snide, you know, reference to make America great again and the Trump campaign, MAGA, what have you. And so every year I'd come back to these cops, you know, then the next one was in Poland and then Madrid and they're at the French pavilion, make the planet great again. And it would just break my heart. So this year I head into the blue zone and I, I know the French pavilions in there somewhere, and I'm just going to turn the corner and, and I'm going to see it and they've, they will have chosen a new slogan. But no, <laughs> it's still there. Make the planet great again. And, you know, um, I was disappointed, but then enlightened because the fact of the matter is, you know, the make America great again, mentality is still alive and well in the U.S., uh, in, uh, in the U.S. Congress, you know, that um, Biden and Kerry have to work with. Um, it's still there, I think, in the mentality of Joe Manchin and his constituents and how they're organizing things. And, uh, and it's like, yeah, the battle's not over, you know, and uh, and it really is a battle of worldviews. You know, are we going to promote nationalism, or are we going to promote, um, you know, uh, this again, uh, the Paris Agreement? It's not perfect, but to tell you the truth, I mean, 
how many times in history has there been such a universal cooperative statement of goodwill? And um, so, yeah, it's, it's a worldview struggle. Yeah. More than just extractivism, um, you know, nationalism plays a big role. Yeah, I have a picture of that sign that's just the hashtag from COP23. Cop And I saw that the other day and I always get a chuckle when I see that picture. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want want them to retire it, but uh, that's going to depend on, you know, the work that we do in the U.S., whether they retire it or not. So, yeah, 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 for sure. So we're talking about COP26 and this, Mm -hmm. um, these the end what is what is the word for it the nationally uh determined determined contributions yeah yeah Yeah. the ndrcs i was trying to think of the letters for it um so with that um what else like made cops so important they were highly anticipated uh coming with that five years post cop 21 yeah. Um, in the end, you know, in the end, the NDCs really are at the bottom line. And this was kind of a funny thing because we kept saying, okay, this is this is the rounds where we're coming back with our ambitious nationally determined contributions. The first ones that were generated in Paris were only sufficient to prevent a 2.7, 2.65 degree warming. Uh, In the middle there, between Paris and now, uh, we heard that there was no industrialized nation which is on track to meet even its Paris commitments, let alone add new ambitious ones. So we're tracking that. There's only one nation, according to this website, the Carbon Tracker, that has indices which are sufficient uh, for the uh, for the 1.5 degree target, and that is the nation, the Gambia. <laughs> so, um, so the indices were 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 big, and um, but it was kind of surprising that um, there was never this moment where it was said, okay, we've collected all of them. Here they are. Here's what the scientists say about forced warmings. And now um, and, and, and now we go from here. And part of that is because not all of the NDCs have come in yet, which is just an astounding thing considering the fact that we've had a postponement. Um, the carbon tracker midway through uh, worked with the data that they did have, and they said, now w- we can say we're on track to prevent a 2.4 degree warming, mm. which is better. It's certainly better than Paris. It's certainly better than what we had before Paris, for crying out loud. And we're moving our way toward that, um, toward, uh, toward the targets. Um, but there's a big difference between 2.4 warming and preventing a 2.0 warming and certainly preventing a 1.5 degree warming. And if there was a big story that came out of um, uh, Glasgow, I think it is um, now the 1.5 degree target has been enshrined. Hmm. And this is an interesting story because you can go all the way back to um, Copenhagen, which would have been COP, 
COP, what, COP 18? No, COP 15, I think, um, when they tried to come up with the Copenhagen Accord. And uh, there's, um, there's a wonderful documentary called uh, The Island President. And it features uh, Mohammed Nasheed, who at the time was the president of the Maldives, this low-lying island nation. I've been to the Maldives. <laughs> um, the average elevation of the Maldives is one meter above sea level. And uh, when the big tsunami waves came, you know, back, what was that, 2005, there were certain islands where the wave like rushed over the island and kept right on going. So that's how low lying and small and vulnerable they are. So, you know, back at the time of Copenhagen, uh, Mohammed Nasheed was, was a climate change rock star. And he came to Copenhagen uh, as the voice of uh, the low-lying island nations. And he said, 1.5 degree target uh, is our existential threshold. Anything above that, we will cease to exist. And uh, he, they fought, they, they met, uh, and they tried to get 1.5 recognized, and, uh, and they failed. Hmm. So then you fast forward to COP21, the Paris Agreement, and even then, uh, you know, uh, the target enshrined in the Paris Agreement, according to Article 2, is uh, the uh, 2.0 degrees Celsius target. And they only added language. Let me see. I've got it called on my computer here. And let's see if I have a lousy memory for this sort of uh, wording. Okay. So uh, the Paris Agreement target holding the increase in the global average temperature to well below 2.C uh, above pre-industrial levels and pursuing efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels. So 2.0 was enshrined, but they were gonna pursue efforts. They were gonna try their best, whatever, you know, to reach that 1.5 degree target. Um, and, um, and that was even like, just kind of slipped in at the last moment, we understand. Okay, well, everything changed in 2018, right before uh, COP24, uh, when the IPCC came out with their report and they showed the exponential amount of damage and suffering between a 1.5 degree target and a 2.0 degree target. And that's, uh, that's kind of when the world uh, awoke to this, well, to this question of humanity, <laughs> you know, what kind of human beings are we if we don't do everything that we can for the 1.5 degree target? Uh, but of course, time slips away. We're now at 1.1 degree, as at least as uh, the uh, the Glasgow Climate Pact uh, mentions. Um, we see all the suffering attendant to a 1.1 degree warmer world. Like even my wife just left this morning for British Columbia to go visit our son. And uh, of course, the I don't know if you've heard the news reports about the torrential rain and the the mudslides, the landslides, the loss of life, that sort of thing. So um, yeah, 1.5 is getting harder and harder to reach the longer and slower that we, uh, that we go. And so there was a real question whether um, 
there would be a reaffirmed commitment to the 1.5 degree target. And, uh, and there is, even in the Glasgow uh, um, uh, Climate Pact, uh, really 1.5 degree target appears there in a way that the two degree uh, doesn't. Uh, and then of course, you know, there's, there's still some waffling, for instance, uh, original language apparently in the negotiations in, the, uh, in this new document said they resolved to limit warming to 1.5. But then that later changed to resolve to pursue limiting warming mm. to 1.5. And there's a difference. These words signify something, right? So, uh, you know, there's the slogan, keep 1.5 alive. Well, I, I, I think that probably was accomplished. Um, yeah. Which I, I think is a, a big deal. And if anybody has followed, like you were talking about the process uh, these last few years, it has been nailed home time and time again, we have to reach that 1.5 degrees mm -hmm. and as a target, uh, because I think the biggest thing that I've seen in my experiences having gone to COP is also I think that was a big issue following COP26 this year is we have to achieve this 1.5 degrees or, or achieve this as a benchmark. But also at the same time, there was just heavy greenwashing and it seems like it's, it's over and over and over again that it's like, we want to meet this goal of not surpassing 1.5 degrees Celsius warming. But in the policies and decisions that have been made, especially uh, with following COP26, that, I mean, the largest delegation this year was it like 530 or 503? Three, yeah. 503 from the oil and gas industry. So no country's delegation was higher than the oil and gas industry. So it's like, it's kind of that turning point or that point of reckoning. It's like, we have to sign on to this as like not surpassing that, but also we have to make that commitment. But it's just, just the dynamics it makes you realize that it's like, there are so many competing forces. Yeah while also trying to sign on to something that's unprecedented at the same time. Yeah. Hey, let me, uh, let me make a statement. I'm trying, still trying to understand and get my heads ar around this report about the 503 oil and gas uh, executives or associated uh, delegates. And, you know, when that report came in the middle of the cop, it was huge. And there were calls to ban, uh, uh, this group and and it is pretty startling that the number of 503 is larger than any other national delegation. Um, you know, Brazil was the largest 400 something um, that sort of thing, but um, it bears a little bit more exploring because you know there really was no delegation uh, called the oil and gas delegation. 
right? These were 503 um, um, individuals um, who are registered with the UNFCCC uh, in some way, and they are dispersed among 40,000 others. Mm -hmm. Now, some of them were like, you know, one or two in a national delegation, um, um, you know, here and a national delegation there. There were some, you know, who were there with industry and, and, and whatnot. So I don't know if it's exactly fair to call them a delegation. Uh, and also, I'd be curious about what agenda and uh, uh, they did bring. I, I don't know if they brought a unified agenda, but here's the thing. Um, you know, systemic interpretations uh, suggest that, yeah, you introduce oil and gas executives even into a national delegation with the amount of lobbying money that they've had, with the track record that they've had, and it's bound to have an effect. So, you know, how do climate change is such we've got to mobilize everybody <laughs> and for some people uh like the oil and gas industry that mobilization involves calling them to repentance it, it calling them to you know uh restructure outdated uh uh business models um to call into um you know question uh kind of how they're doing and and what it means for them to participate in the transition to you know, a clean energy economy. Um, so I think I was just struck by at COP26 by, by how complex this issue is. And um, so kind of black and white, you know, things, I understand how that works with messaging, but um, you know, we're not gonna get far along on this journey unless we're willing to embrace some complexity, so. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. And like to add to that piece of it, but just thinking beyond kind of the messaging of it, a friend of mine that I met at COP23, who uh, was on a observer delegation with um, an organization in Singapore. And she like posted on Instagram, this is I think within the first week, and she's like, I just ran into Jeff Bezos. And then it kind of makes you go down that bunny trail of like, well, if there was 503 people from the oil and gas industry dispersed across the 40,000 participants, it's like, what's also the agenda of, um, of Jeff Bezos and other people like that showing yeah. up to it? And then I can... I mean, this is kind of digressing a little, but I can see the frustration with a lot of uh, intersectional uh, climate leaders and environmentalists that were there really driving home this issue of like, is, so is this turning into Davos now? Exactly, yeah. Because yeah. I forget the, uh, the African activist I forget her name. Uh, she's a youth climate activist and a part of Fridays for Future. And it was Greta Thunberg was in the picture. Um, I think Louisa, I forget her last name. She's from Germany. Mm. So two iconic um, 
climate activist, but this African uh, young female was actually cut out of the picture. Oh, yes, 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 yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah at Davos. Yeah, yeah. And so she was, I think, there at least for the first week of COP26. Yeah. And the same thing, I, th I think, I could be wrong, happened again where she was cut out of pictures as well. Yeah. And it's like, try it's like driving home that idea of like so what is the real agenda here because at the same time all these countries signed on to this unprecedented mm. agreement but then you have moments like that too yeah yeah uh, that makes you wonder and the one thing kind of with that i wanted to kind of get your take on is the whole issues with article six <laughs> With the whole, um, basically, northern countries, northern uh, industrialized nations supporting the less lesser developed nations around the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess there's three conversations around that. One is Article Six, which has to do with carbon trading and and all those uh, mechanisms, and that was. A, an issue of transparency and um, and accountability. Um, I saw Catherine Hayhoe uh, in the middle of the second week. I don't know if your listeners are probably familiar with her, you know, IPCC scientist and now best-selling author of Saving Us. So that's a plug for her new book. And uh, of course, Catherine was the one who uh, interviewed um, Secretary Pete Buttigieg on transportation day and that was a beautiful moment um including that moment when uh, the moderator asked both of them said you are people of faith how does your faith uh affect uh you know your involvement in climate action so that was good but anyway sec i i asked catherine i said um i said how do you think the cops going and she was quite enthused about some of the agreements that had popped up during the first week about methane, about deforestation. But she said, we're finally going to get wording on Article 6. And um, and uh, now I haven't been able to track that down. <laughs> but Article 6 is one thing. Um, I think maybe the more important discussions for the Global South are uh, adaptation and adaptation financing. And that was certainly big. Namely, you know, the nations had set a goal for themselves of raising $100 billion as kind of an initial nest egg, uh, and that that money would be there in the fund by 2020. Um, and then that was only the beginning, because after that, they would raise $100 billion annually for this adaptation. And um, um, and even that was just a floor of what they 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 realized they needed to raise to help uh, uh, lesser developed nations not only with mitigation but with adaptation. And you know they didn't reach the hundred billion goal even in the in the uh, in the Glasgow Climate Pact. There's language that says we regret <laughs> we. Uh, let's see if I can find it. I don't have it here, but we regret, you know, uh, deep regret uh, not reaching, uh, you know, these targets. And uh, and that was a focus of a lot of the protest, you know, uh, don't let them go until they pay was one that we uh, heard. Don't let them go until they pay. You know, they made this promise. 
Uh, but the other thing about this ad adaptation funding is it's um, that came out was that so much of the money that has been raised has gone out to uh, lesser developed nations as loans and not as grants. Mm. And so, um, you know, why would we want to add to the uh, national debt crisis uh, of so many of these nations, you know, at the very same time where climate um, impacts, you know, the latest hurricane comes through and, and the only way they can bounce back from that is to borrow money from, uh, you know, the World Bank or IMF. And, and so why would we want to add to debt, you know, uh, instead of just giving these grants? And um, so that was a big thing on adaptation. But then the third thing uh, is this discussion of loss and damage. And we've never had loss and damage, it seems to me, more front and center. Um, and, um, and yet, you know, I don't think any greater progress on the subject of how do the highly polluting nations um, essentially provide reparations, let's say, for, um, for things that you cannot adapt your way out of that you have just lost. And, you know, you look at nations like Kiribati or, uh, or even the Maldives, you know, uh, who are due to lose not only fertile coastal lands, what have you, but whole nations, you know? Um, so yeah, that, uh, that got a lot of attention. Um, but, uh, not much greater progress, unless we say that getting a lot of attention is progress, right? So, yeah, yeah it's it's very complex of of an issue because it's also like, yeah, that was a that was a big I think issue too for COP twenty five was the whole loss and damages part, yeah. especially for. Uh, kind of proceeding to COP26 because the other thing that I think we didn't really talk about much was also COP26 was a key COP in the sense that uh, like for kind of leading up to COP26 at COP25 was this discussion about how the rule book was going to be finalized for the Paris yeah. Agreement at COP26. So kind of leading up to that, even the COP before, there was a heavy discussion about there needs to be language in there about loss and damages yeah. and supporting the global South because of the fact that the global north wasn't contributing and the fact that it's like a commitment was made to do that uh so the i guess the added anticipation to cop 26 is like we need to sure up this rule book because yeah. what's you know what's it's one thing to say that you have an agreement on something it's another thing to carry it act out and it to have leverage basically yeah. You know, um, it's, it's my opinion 
that you know climate change is not a problem to be fixed. Um, in fact, it, it really never was. I mean, climate change is a journey that we are all on, that we all take, um, you know, both collectively as a planet and a society, but also, you know, individually and on a, on a family level. And so um, that journey perspective, <laughs> um, and in particular, the fact that now with the Paris Agreement in effect, we're entering into these um, uh, now six rounds of five-year cycles, where every, in every third year or in the third year of a cycle, we do a global stock take. The fifth year, we do a revised ambitious NDCs. We do that six times between now and 2050. That's the long haul, <laughs> right? Um, I, I gave one little talk where I compared um, COP26 to someone who's a 26-year-old, right? COP21 was kind of our university period, but now uh, we're embarking on our career. And it's a whole lot of Monday mornings in front of us of rolling up our sleeves you know, it's all got to be about execution, implementation, and, uh, and accountability. Uh, it's got to be about putting one foot in front of the other, but it also has to be about gauging our pace. And that was one thing that should be said about NDCs, and um, is um, and it's also in the um, in the uh, in the Glasgow Climate Pact, the text people kept calling it is that um, you know, having uh, a third year in a five-year cycle of global stock takes and having a fifth year of ambitious newly revised NDCs isn't, isn't gonna cut it. And so uh, consequently, there's calls for annual resubmissions of NDCs to ramp up our ambition on an annual uh, level. That makes sense to me, right? Because things are changing so quickly, we can't afford to wait till, what would it be, COP31, <laughs> you know, for, but the other thing they put in the climate pact was this statement, hey, listen, we didn't do good enough in, um, at, uh, at COP26 with ambitious NDCs, you know, even if we brought it down to a 2.4 degree target, uh, even if it, uh, well, that's not enough. So we will come back, the nations were told, at COP27 in Egypt with new NDCs. So that was a pretty amazing thing to not only say we're going to do this annually, but listen, guys, you know, the next 12 months, we need to re-over, redo over. And that <laughs> reminds me of this one time I was in a, a Black church uh I can't even remember where it was, I guess Chicago. And um, they did the offering plate and it, it was so different from how um, in my white evangelical American church, we used to do it, which was so polite and embarrassed and, uh, and, and what have you. And, but uh, they had the offering plate right out front. The pastor and the, and the deacons were right there in the front and everyone had to get up out of their chair walk to the front of the uh, church and drop their, their offering into the offering plate. 
And then when they were done, the pastor and the deacons looked at it and said, uh, there's not enough in here. We need to come back around. <laughs> And, and that's just so brilliant. And there's like this wisdom there that uh, that was like, oh, so anyway, that's kind of what it felt like the NDCs, you know, in Egypt at COP, uh, at COP 27. So uh, God bless them. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, because is it where, <laughs> so where is it next year again? Because I heard it was Egypt. Is it in Cairo? No, it's not in Cairo. It's, uh, I, I can never remember the name. It's actually in a resort town, Sharm El Sheikh, I think, on the Red Sea. Um, and uh, yeah, Sharm El Sheikh. And, uh, you know, uh, there's not out much out there except hotels and whatnot. It'll be interesting to see how they pull it off. Um, it'll be, um, and it'll be interesting to see you know, each of us in civil society, what, what's the size of the delegations we can bring. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So but we're already planning because yeah. again, you know, it's waking up on Monday morning. It's, you know, it's execution implementation and, uh, and accountability. And after COP 26, there comes COP 27 and yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Which reminds me of one other thing I want to say. I'm sorry. I know. I'm, it's okay. I'm, okay. Um, Greta Thornburg at COP26. Okay. You remember her at COP25. Um, I first met her at COP24 before she was famous. And you made it into uh, her movie. I made it into her movie. I have a 15 second cameo. I have more lines in her movie than... Uh, than Arnold Schwarzenegger or Pope Francis. <laughs> That's impressive. But, you know, nonetheless, um, you know, she, she, she comes and she's got this slogan, which really does take over this blah, 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 that the Paris process and these pronouncements by the world leaders are blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and of course, she's, she's got a point and you can understand her frustration. And the stage was set a month earlier uh, in Milan during the pre-COP, which was a youth COP. And uh, that COP, which was designed to give youth a voice and then actually carry that policy material over into, um, into COP uh, 26 in Glasgow, it, it apparently didn't happen. And so there were protests and, and what have you. And so uh, Greta, uh, comes with her slogan, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they declared a Friday strike, not just of world leaders or of inaction, but of COP26 itself. So that mm -hmm. was the first week. Um, but then during the second week, um, uh, one of our CCOP people attended a forum uh, uh, that had been organized by African pastors. And one of them said this, they said, for us, COP is not blah, blah, blah. COP cannot be blah, blah, blah. COP cannot fail. Um, and this is the only place where we have a chance to make our voices heard. You know, um, we might not be listened to as fully as we want. We might not be as brought fully to the table as we want. Now I'm paraphrasing, now I'm adding, um, um, 
so but the idea is um this is our our forum and so we cannot afford to um you know to label it blah 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 and walk away um so yeah that, that was that was interesting right and um and yeah and it'll be interesting to see kind of where greta goes from here and how she's perceived from here and um and the interaction between youth and the paris process from here um it's it's going to be fascinating yeah yeah, I definitely followed a lot of youth from varying backgrounds this time around, yeah. kind of to get my boots on the ground take of it, because I, I would say of the people I followed did a really good job of giving daily updates and kind of taking an in-person account of what's going on, but I think it's reached a point where in addition to Greta, a lot of the youth around the world are tired of being sick and tired, basically. Yeah, no. And, yeah. and I think they have every right to feel that way. And in that same context, I think you're, you'll have a point where it's like, this was a crucial cop and to a degree every cop is crucial but this one especially like you said it couldn't fail and to some degree it did uh but then kind of talking about other things that there was some degree of a success to that and what came out of that was the glasgow climate pact so could you talk a little bit about what the Glasgow Climate Pact is, because I know you've mentioned it so far a couple times. Sure. So, you know, the Paris Agreement was adopted back in 2015. It's gone into full effect now. There's been a lot of work on the rule book um, for how the Paris Agreement will be implemented. And the Paris Agreement really is only a 25 page document with uh, with very wide margins. <laughs> it's just a framework. Uh, but the question is, how do you keep it as a living document? How do we keep the Paris Agreement moving and changing uh, and, uh, and being what we need it to be from now until, you know, um, uh, 2050 is, you know, is, is kind of its sunset? Um, well, the answer is these cops, obviously. And the answer is whatever work that these cops generate. Uh, and so consequently, let's capture that work in a text. Um, let's, let's add some, um, some weight to it by understanding it's a pact, P-A-C-T, right? Uh, between all of us, you know, this is, this is our good faith cooperative expression uh, for 2021. There'll be something different, you know, at COP27. I, whether they will, you know, generate something that has a title um, and that uh, feels like a document or not um, uh, is, is, is yet to be seen in future COPs. But I've got the it called up uh, on my computer here. And uh, 
I mean, it's it's an interesting document. There's uh, 10 pages to it. There's, um, uh, I'm scrolling down to be able to count all the, uh, all the points, uh, oh, 97 different points that, that they make, which are usually just a single paragraph or even a, a single sentence. And it represents all the work that was done in individual meetings on individual topics. Uh, it all had to like uh, be sent out from committee to the, to the big group. Uh, there's some significant things in here. Um, um, I just heard Christiana Figueres, who was the architect of the Paris Agreement. She said she's never seen a document with so much urgency uh, mm. front and center uh, and language of urgency and tone of urgency. And I think part of that is the fact we've just come off the IPC sixth summary report in there. Um, it begins uh, uh, with adaptation listed as the second main point. So even though adaptation, maybe there's not a lot in that section that is uh, encouraging or represents great progress, the fact that they've begun to put adaptation uh, toward the front of their discussions shows that uh, people are aware that these lesser developed countries and, and even communities, to tell you the truth, in the U.S., uh, well, all around the world, you know, they need to adapt now. <laughs> um, they're already experiencing these horrendous effects. Um, but, you know, each of these sentences, each of these um, statements were debated over and and promoted or undermined, even undermined at the last moment. Um, I already uh, mentioned how the 1.5 degree wording was watered down a bit from being resolved to limit it to rather resolve to pursue it. Uh, there was another very famous one that uh, India stepped in at the last moment. Uh, I've got it up here. Here's a statement about including accelerating efforts towards the phase down of unabated coal power and phase out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. That's the statement. It's unique that the words fossil fuels even appeared mm. in any statement because they've really kind of tiptoed around, you know, actually putting their finger on coal and fossil fuels. And the original proposal was that it would be a phase out of coal power. Mm -hmm. um, but India stepped in at the last moment, it became a phase down, which is a different thing, right, in diplomatic language, and a phase down of unabated coal power, uh, which means uh, there's the potential for even clean coal con technology in people's minds that would allow us to keep burning coal. So they, they reserved the phase out for inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Um, well, even that word inefficient, right? Uh, I, I, I don't know what they were thinking with that one, but I mean, if anything needs to go and needs to go right now, it needs to be fossil fuel subsidies. Mm -hmm. And there's no place where that is more true than, uh, than the United States. Um, but of course, uh, Australia and China are also part of that. So, so you can find the document online. It's interesting. Um, and, uh, and its purpose is to keep the Paris Agreement 
alive and changing, adapting to the changing scene, which really is, is quite fluid, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I have it pulled up right now and I'm kind of looking through it and I'll probably, what I'll do is link this into the episode description so people can directly look at it from there. Um, which is interesting you say that because then also within, what was it, within like a matter of days after uh, COP26 was over, if not hours maybe, uh, Nicola Sturgeon from, I guess she's what, the, the first, first minister of Scotland. Yeah. yeah, the first minister of Scotland talked about this whole um, I haven't been following it heavily, but it's a, I think it's a offshore uh, either oil or gas production that um, basically it's the exploration of new fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she made the news basically pretty much saying, she's like, we have to act with urgency. And it's like, it's days after COP26 was over and they're still discussing the exploration of yeah. this new fossil fuel project. And it's like, it makes you wonder, like, did we just forget what just happened in our own country? Like mm, yeah. a matter of days ago. So it was, it's impressive though, that the fact that it's like all this work, all, all this advocacy to really uphold and carry out things like the Paris Agreement from all different sectors of our society to really see that now front and center in decisions like this. Mm -hmm. And especially I think what's so important is the fact that this was the first minister of Scotland days after. Yeah the country hosted COP26. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's shocking and it's disheartening. And I think, you know, the more Glasgow climate packs that we can generate that have actual language that has been debated and, and agonized over, um, the more and more um, these world leaders are going to be squeezed, you know, where even their own conscience or their own sense of disconnect is, is, is challenged. Uh, and, you know, where people are going to say, uh, but wait a second, you know, first minister, this is what you said a week ago, you know, or this is what you agreed to in the global climate pact. You know, so once again, we're left with this kind of like uh, progress, but um, but this awful sense of, you know, too slow, too late, you know, um, there's a whole lot of pain in our uh, in our future. And um, yeah, we 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 keep pressing on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so kind of with talking about 
pressing upon these issues with world leaders and holding them accountable. What impact do you think religious or um, faith-based organizations made a role with COP26? And how do you see that going forward with future COPs? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I tracked that from the beginning and I tracked it, you know, up one side and down the other. I mean, it was always at the forefront of my attention since that was kind of the space that I was occupied pine. Uh, I did hear our friend Ruth Valerio with Tear Fund in the UK. She uh, interviewed Christiana Figueres, again, the, uh, the architect of the Paris Agreement back when she was General Secretary of uh, the UNFCCC. And Christiana Figueres uh, told Ruth, there would be no Paris Agreement without faith-based groups. Um, now, you know, I, I don't know if that was just a, a kind encouragement or whatever. Um, and, but heading into COP26, I mean, uh, one of the most significant developments was back at the end of the summer when Pope Francis and ecumenical uh, patriarch Bartholomew and Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby and other faith leaders um, actually signed this joint agreement. And it was, or this joint statement rather. So it was a huge big statement. And, uh, and almost every faith-based group came with a statement and, uh, and a petition. And uh, I think, you know, um, the prevalence of the Church of England and the Church of Scotland and the availability of so many churches and worship sites, um, there was faith-based stuff going on everywhere. Uh, both in the COP and with um, um, uh, out in the city. Um, so much so that I was talking to a couple uh, leaders, one with the World Council of Churches, the other um, based there in the US. And they're uh, contemplating um, asking the UNFCCC or the next COP presidency to actually designate one of the days of COP for faith. Usually there's a theme for the day, transportation, gender, um, you know, nature-based solutions, all of those. So what about a day where it's just faith? So that was some of the, the talk that was going on. Uh, interesting developments in this is um, we all seem to be uh, gathering together around this under this one term climate justice and it's a wonderful term um, but I also wonder whether it's a sufficient frame for what all faith-based groups um, bring to uh, uh, you know bring to the issue I was even on a panel and and the panel was on climate justice and I said you know even if you consider uh, so much of our our language around justice comes from Micah 6, 8, you know, to love mercy, to act justly, to walk humbly with your God. Um, well, justice is only one of the three uh, statements there. Is there such a thing as um, loving climate peace and acting climate justly and walking in climate humility with your God? 
So I want to explore uh, even other ways that that Jesus, for instance, uh, from my faith tradition, are there other ways that Jesus shows up in climate action besides just being a justice warrior? What are other faces of of Jesus? So that's one development as we're kind of playing out this this justice thing. The other development, and I guess maybe this was more um, personal and kind of how I experienced it at our base camp and and some of the teaching that we did is um, yeah there can be statements and there can be mobilized constituencies but I'm still not sure that as faith-based groups we've put our finger on the real gifts that God wants us to bring to climate the climate movement you know we can bring some political power but really, <laughs> will it be sufficient? Certainly in the U.S., will there be sufficient political power coming out of the churches, um, you know, uh, for climate action? We can bring money, but really, <laughs> will there be sufficient money, you know, for these missional projects, you know, built around mitigation adaptation? I don't. But I keep coming back to that one story out of Acts chapter three. Uh, Peter and John, they encounter this beggar who's looking for money, expecting money there at the temple gate. They make eye contact. Um, and then, uh, you know, Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. Take up your bed and walk. And then later on, when Peter's questioned about it, you know, he says, why are you marveling that? It's not by any power that I have, not by any personal power, any political power, any financial power. It's not by any power or by any piety that I have. In other words, we can write up these big moral arguments, but it's the name of Jesus which healed this man. And so, I mean, that's not only a question for Christians, but it's a question for all our interfaith partners, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhists. Uh, and there's great interfaith cooperation and perspective, but are we bringing our best gift? You know, uh, Peter said, what I have, I give to you. In other words, and, and that what he had was the name of Jesus or the character of Jesus or even Christ in me and, and, uh, and, and I in Christ. Um, you know, are we bringing the best divinely given gifts that we have to the climate movement? And uh, I don't think we're there yet. So, but it's been exciting to interact and um, move closer and closer to that yeah and it's been fascinating kind of for the first time at, in my experience at cop 25 really seeing the impact the broader faith community so not just christians um but also seeing the jewish community the mm -hmm. islamic community buddhists and what have you not all dispersed in there really coming to cop with a, I would even argue a different perspective than the average person too. Cause I think it's, it's, it's not just like, this is what I want and I want to get it kind of perspective, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But I think it's like, it's, there's something unique about a faith-based perspective being there 
at the cops. And I think it's important that there, regardless of a faith tradition, that there are faith-based organizations there and present yeah. on the ground. Yeah, yeah. And that's the way I tried to word the question, not only to the participants in the program, but you know, on my panels or whatever. Um, what is the what is unique about Christianity or about your faith? Um, what can you uniquely bring to the climate movement? Now, unique does not necessarily mean exclusively give, right? And unique can easily fold into triumphalism, right? Here we are, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, uh, we're here to save the day, you know, that sort of thing. But nonetheless, you know, what is it that's unique about your faith background? Um, and, uh, and, 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 and will you bring it? Will you bring your best gift? To, uh, to the climate movement. Um, there's a lot of people clamoring after your vote and you should, you should vote that way. There's a lot of people clamoring after your, your um, well, it's talked about as a warm body, right? Someone who'd be willing to get arrested or, you know, or march or what have you. Uh, there's a lot who are clamoring after your mailing list uh, and all of that we should be at the forefront of. <laughs> um, but, uh, but even so, we can provide all of that and it would be power and piety, uh, but we still haven't really, um, you know, gone interior, uh, connected with our God and really given, given our unique and best gift. So that's a challenge. Yeah, for sure. And going off of that with the challenge of, Kind of experiencing cop for the for the full breadth of it so usually people come either for the first week or the second week but then there are some individuals that are there for the entire experience uh like yourself so what what ways did you have you done to kind of recharge from this overwhelming <laughs> last few as yeah. kind of like, like, what have you done for your physical and mental health yeah. in the yeah. process to recharge after these yeah. exciting, but tumultuous last two weeks with it? Yeah. Well, that, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll spare you the story of my long sojourn from Glasgow to Amsterdam sleeping on a bench for 10 hours layover and then it was to Paris and then finally to Toronto and then COVID testing. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, the journey itself back was exhausting and I got back on Sunday night and uh, Monday I spent on the couch. Tuesday I spent on the couch. Uh, that was yesterday and uh, sent out my first email. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah, I'm still bouncing back and I'm still getting over jet lag. Um, and, um, and one thing that I've been doing to tell you the truth is trying to push out, um, these kind of speaking opportunities 
you know, I mean, it, it's, just, uh, I love you dearly, Shana. And that's the only reason I said yes, the uh, <laughs> Thursday, after the, the cop, this, this, this interview, um, because, um, this is going to take some time to process and reflect on and, um, and, you know, I, I was convinced heading into uh, COP26 that November 13, which is the day after COP26 was supposed to end, that the world would be different somehow, right? You know, and that we are heading into now this 30-year period where things are going to be different and have to be different. And we have to approach uh, the cops even differently you know, uh, what we want to accomplish. Um, well, I don't have a handle on that yet. I don't know, you know, kind of how it is different. I feel it in my bones, you know, that I was right in making that pronouncement. Uh, but I think it's just going to take some time and some retreat space. Um, and then meanwhile, um, I mean, this is helpful. You know, um, because I haven't had this year, you're my first chance to debrief, but you know, every podcast I listen to every article I read, um, um, particularly from different perspectives, um, oops, you hear my dog there, he's barking at someone who my dog does not believe that other human beings are allowed to exist, let alone walk past the front of our house. So <laughs> Um, for instance, there was an article, my, uh, I have a, my wife's cousin lives out in Vancouver. He's the head of a satellite company. And he sent this email that, or this article that appeared in the economist, where this one economist said, there were actually three cops that took place. One was uh, the political cop. The other was the civil society kind of all around it cop. And the other was what was happening in the blue zone at all these pavilions and and where like engineers and innovators and you know uh, and and it is that's one experience of of a cop that many people don't get a chance to hear about. But you walk into the blue zone and someone's doing a presentation and you think, man, there's a lot of clever people in this world doing a lot of good work. And if this was multiplied a hundredfold, you know, um, who knows what could happen? I mean, I sat in on one presentation where an innovation award was given to this island in Denmark that uh, is now 100% uh, carbon neutral and is actually exporting energy to the rest of, uh, you know, and it's like, yeah. So, I mean, that, that was a different perspective that I, uh, that I wouldn't have reflected on if I hadn't chosen to debrief my own experience by reading widely on other people's experience of COP26. Well, I feel very, very honored that <laughs> I'm your first one. Yeah. Yeah, and you wore me out. I'm going to go back and take a nap after this. Oh, so. goodness. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, also, we did it early enough in the day that that would make sense. Yes. Too. Yeah. That's yeah. like yesterday. I looked at, uh, I looked outside and I said, 
if I don't get those leaves raked off my lawn and my neighbor's lawn by uh, by 12 noon, there's no way I'm going to get around to it today. So yeah, you chose a high energy time. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and it's, yeah, I think it's important that you mentioned that. And I feel like it was a necessary question to ask uh, based off of personal experience too, that it's like, it is so overwhelming. And I mean, in large part, it's like, I plan time uh, around like sightseeing really afterwards, because it's, yeah, like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's necessary to kind of have that point to uh, just like, just regroup basically because sure. it's yeah. it's definitely a very overstimulating experience in a lot of ways yeah 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 so kind of with all of that said uh is there anything that you would like to kind of point out before pretty much wrapping up uh you know i i I don't think I'll say anything extra except to uh, to thank you, Shana, and to point out the good work that you're doing and um, and um, wish you the best as you transition your your podcast into a new platform and, and a new perspective of things. I mean, um, you know, I looked at the way you engaged COP25. Um, but not only the way you engaged COP25, the way you left COP25, you know, and, and asked yourself, okay, based on my experience, what's next? What, what can I do practically? Who do I need to report back to? How can I better mobilize my constituents or, you know, my circle, let's say, of, of what have you. And, and I think that's the question that everyone around the world <laughs> has got to ask because in some ways we've all had an experience of COP26, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it is, you know, the first COP after the postponement. Um, I would like to say the first COP after a global pandemic and after the lessons that we've learned from a global pandemic, but the pandemic continues and I'm not sure we've all learned the lessons. And yet, you know, um, everyone asking the question, based on my experience of COP26, uh, where do I go from here? And uh, I think you're a model of, of, of that. And so keep on keeping on. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad that. you're my friend. Yeah. Likewise, likewise. And, and for if just, I mean, I think to add context to that and appreciation, uh, and some listeners may not know this, but like COP25 for me and my experience with the CCOP program was not just like the necessary experience I needed to kind of progress me in a life of vocation, but also it was like, it felt like it was divine intervention in a mm -hmm. lot of ways, because it's like, it was the pieces that came together for me that I needed to, to see a path forward. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's been remarkable to kind of see what that's looked like personally in the last, gosh, almost two years, basically, or two years, 
since COP25. So I also want to say, I feel like I wouldn't have been able to have that experience without the CCOP program. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we're going back to COP27. Uh, That's in Egypt. COP28 is in UAE. That's already been established. And you can find us at uh, CCOP. That stands for Christian Climate Observers Program, ccopclimate.org. And um, we'll now go dormant as a program since uh, we're really just a conglomeration of various partners. Um, but in March, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get up a new website and we'll, uh, um, and we'll start receiving applications in June. And so if any of your listeners um, fit that profile of a young emerging not even young <laughs> although we do we do want to we do want to do more to center young leaders and people of color who are leaders and indigenous people who are leaders um so i'll just leave that in there but if you're an emerging leader and you have a, a um and if you're looking for a jump start you're looking for some street cred you're looking for a way to integrate your faith and climate action um feel free to apply. And also, if you represent a, a group or a constituency that is undermobilized, right? Um, that's the whole point, is to give you that immersive experience and then to put you right back in the middle of the people that God has given you to, uh, you know, to mobilize them for climate action. So, yeah, uh, keep an eye out on the website and apply in June and, uh, and, uh, and COP27 in in Sharm El Sheikh. So, and if you can't join the CCOP program as a delegate, they also have newsletters to sign yeah, up for. Yeah. So, yeah, we do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lowell, it's been such a pleasure <laughs> to have you yeah. on the podcast and to debrief with you for your first time since coming home uh, yeah. from COP26. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. Blessings. Thanks for listening to another episode of Sustaining with Shana. You can now listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor.fm, and many other platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and, of course, leave a review or comment. To follow us on Facebook or Instagram, go to sustainingwithshana.com. Also, What you read and listen to here on the platform was carefully created and curated content made just for you, the listeners. Any generous donations can help to keep me supplying you with great content. Just go to Sustaining with Shana's website. Click on the donate page to donate. Glad you're here. Thanks a million for listening.